This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Thanks to everyone who got in touch about last week's podcast. After we discussed whether Theresa May's past was coming back to haunt her, Harsh V said, nothing haunts May, she haunts the country. And after we discussed dull people on social media, William Kajani said, can we please ha- have a mug with I don't give a toss about your train problem written on it? We'll see what we can do. You can tweet your comments at Times Red Box while you listen along. And just a quick heads up that next week we're looking at the history of Downing Street with people who've worked there. So if if you've got any questions about what life is really like in number 10, no matter how silly or trivial, email them to redbox at thetimes.co.uk and we'll answer them next week. Right, back to this week, and I'm delighted to welcome back comedian Tiff Stevenson, who already has royal baby fatigue. Deputy political editor of The Times, Sam Coates, thinks he's spotted a top Tory on leadership manoeuvres. But first, Times columnist Hugo Rifkin asked the question that I keep asking myself, what the hell is going on in British politics? Two main political parties seem to be competing over which can look the nastiest. After months of criticism for turning a blind eye to anti-Semitism, Jeremy Corbyn today meets with Jewish groups, but it's hard to have high hopes they'll get anywhere. Meanwhile, the Tories would like you to think that the Windrush debacle is merely a failure of process. It isn't. In fact, it exposes bigotry and bias every bit as ingrained as that currently plaguing the Labour Party. So Hugo, I suppose we, we will deal with them both equally. But let's start as you as you started with Labour. Let's start with the Labour Party. I've in the red box email for the past week or so. I've kept using the phrase "this is not normal." Yeah, stuff keeps happening, and it ends up not being the biggest story of the day. But in a way, it should be. But we sort of become a bit inured to it. So Jewish groups protesting about the leader of the opposition outside Parliament isn't normal. Yes, Labour MPs attacking their leader while he sits on the front bench in the House of Commons is not normal. Emily Thornby going on the telly at the weekend and saying she gets stopped in the street by mm. people who are anti-Semitic but thinks that she's on their side because they all support the Labour Party. That's not normal either. Yes, look, I start by saying good for Emily Thornbury. You know, she's um, she sometimes seems to be the only person in the bunker who can see outside of it and understands what it's like for people outside it looking in and, and so on. I mean, the, the, the first bit of that, the Jew- Jewish groups protesting in the manner in which they've been doing so is remarkable. It's never happened. Nothing like that's ever sort of happened before. Um which is particularly remarkable because these groups are often filled with particularly the kind of sort of Jewish leadership groups, the the, the, the the JLC and the Board of Deputies. A lot of the people around them, they're quite political people. A lot of them are basically quite connected to um, to, to the sort of Blair era Labour Party. Uh, um, but it, despite being quite political people, they don't normally polit- get politicised. 
and they felt things had got to such a stage with, with Labour and the rhetoric with which Labour was prepared to put up that they demonstrated. It's very hard to imagine what on earth anybody is going to get out of Corbyn's meeting with them today uh, because Corbyn's basically spent his, his entire career not speaking to people like that. The kind of Jews that Corbyn likes to speak to are, uh, are left-wing Jews, are, um, are Jews who, who, who perhaps are culturally Jewish but less religiously Jewish. These are groups that are, these are, these are, sort of, these are synagogue bodies um, and they are, they're, I mean, they're, they're going to be appalled by Corbyn and Corbyn's going to be appalled by him. I can't imagine what's going to happen. Tiff, what have, you, what have you made of this? Well, we'll come on to the, the Windrush thing in a sec, but just the, the spectacle of what's been going on in the Labour Party. It's mad. And I don't think I sort of realised, not being Jewish, at what level sort of anti-Semitism was in the in the UK wide, not just mm. politically. Um, until recently, I did a tweet about something, something quite innocuous. And then I just got this anti-Semitic bile aimed at me. And I was like, wow, well, I'm not even Jewish and I'm getting this. So I can't imagine what it's like and I think people feel like the Labour Party aren't doing enough to tackle it. When was the Chakrabarti sort of Two report? Years Two years ago, yeah, yeah. And and I think I think people within the party feel like it hasn't been tackled in a way uh, or any positive steps moving forward. Not being a Jewish person and now being sort of hyper aware of how bad it is, something needs to be done. But what what, what is going to come out of this meeting, like you say? The problem, the problem is that both sides here regard themselves as being completely sincere. Corbyn believes himself to be an oppon- opponent of all forms of anti-Semitism and other forms of racism, but he does mean it. You know, he doesn't just he doesn't just say that we're going to actually anti-Semitism is fine. He does mean it, but he doesn't conflate the kind of things he dislikes, which are Zionism, which are sometimes affluence, which are perhaps the whole concept of a minority becoming successful frankly and 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 perhaps becoming more conservative as it becomes successful all these kind of things he doesn't he doesn't associate with anti-semitism unfortunately the people he's talking about often do associate them with anti-semitism i was just going to say like owen jones is someone who i think brings that up quite a lot there seems to be that when people become successful people like lord adonis there's this kind of uh, almost like backlash from sort of left-wing working class people and uh, i I wonder why that is. I feel like it's always been the been the way, but it's interesting that you say mm. like kind of the affluence and and that kind of being a part of it. Sam, lots of amazing things have happened in politics in the last week, never mind the last two or three years. But this this isn't normal, is it? This to, to see one of our main political parties embroiled in this? No, abs- absolutely not. There was a moment last Wednesday, which for me was the sort of nadir of all of this, which was during Prime Minister's questions when you had Theresa May on the back foot, and rightly so, over the Windrush scandal, how we've treated people that came in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s from the Caribbean islands. And you had the anti-Semitism row going on in the Labour Party, which has been going on and on and on for months again, and rightly so. And Theresa May mounted the argument in front of all other 649 MPs and tried to claim that their racism was worse than our racism. <laughs> and I know I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically <laughs> what she was much. saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, wanted much, yeah. to make, she wanted to make out this point that the anti-Semitism was worse than what some people have seen as the divisive and uh, sort of community unsettling policies that have been so vigorously pursued by home office bureaucrats on behalf of politicians desperate to bring down net migration numbers while uh, Britain was part of the European Union. 
and having to make the environment tough, this hostile environment, precisely because we didn't really have the levers to deal with migration. And she basically reached for, but your problems are worse than mine. And I think that that, that sort of captures what I find so incredibly depressing about this, which is um, at the first sniff of it all coming up, rather than people properly looking and reflecting and trying to change, it is the attempt to weaponise it for political gain mm-hmm. And also the inclination of people both in the Conservative Party and in the Labour Party when talking about their own problems to sort of shrug, to sort of suggest that this was just part of the game at the time or that this is in some way being weaponised by the opposition or it is the result of internal tensions between factions within a party. It is what what the point that you're making very well, Matt, is that this isn't normal and it's the normalisation of both things within both parties that I find really depressing and the thing that means that time and again and again we have to come back and say no stop don't do it like that because what you're doing is incredibly divisive I've just looked at the quote actually while you were talking so so after Jamie Corbyn had a go at Theresa May she came back he accused her of being callous and she said I will not take an accusation of callous from a man who allows anti-semitism to run rife in his own party which is basically saying well I might be callous but you're not allowed to call me that because you've got trouble on your side which is just what a pathetic depressing state of affairs <laughs> so, so just very quickly it's worth looking at how Theresa may has dealt with some of the accusations about windrush uh that have fallen in the last week and her response has been to apologize for the way that these people were treated but absolutely to defend herself against any accusations that she might go soft and to shore herself up against mm-hmm. her right her right flank by saying, this is a question of good and bad migration, illegal and legal migration. Everything is binary. We've been making choices based on um, on that choice, on that political decision, uh, and therefore everything I have done is just. And I think this is where the kind of Tory trouble comes, because people aren't binary. Illegal or legal migration, when it comes to proving it using documentation that's 10, 20, 30, 40 years old, is really hard. And I think that there is just a sense that she can be tin-eared in the way that she approaches things. She tries to draw equivalents like she did with Jeremy Corbyn and to draw binary definitions when people's lives aren't that straightforward. And I think that's the thing that uh, she clings on to and makes life very difficult for the Tories trying to execrate themselves from what has undoubtedly been uh, one of the biggest messes that Theresa May has landed Amber Rudd in uh, <laughs> or Amber Rudd's comparatively brief tenure at the Home Office. I mean, I think the Tories are the Tories are getting off lightly on wind, on, on Windrush, and and it's um without wishing to draw the, the the equivalence that Theresa May drew, you can see how lightly they're getting off when you when you look at what's happening to Labour because it is not yet being suggested much that this is an existential problem that the Tories have, that this is something that cuts right to the heart of them. Rachel Sylvester did a very good job of that, actually, in her column today. You look back at the Tories over the course of the last 20 years, you go from from Michael Howard's Are You Thinking What We're Thinking to, to Zach, Zach Goldsmith's mayoral campaign to, um, to, you know, to, to various, various stages and um, to Citizens of Nowhere. And you have the, you have this this streak of anti anti immigration and anti immigrants within the Tories, which May does not, as Sam says, does not wish to disavow. She wishes to disassociate herself from the toxic bit, bits of it, but she doesn't wish to disavow the whole the whole concept in the way her critics would like. When you when you track that across the other side, you look at Jeremy Corbyn. There was a big fuss, was it last week or the week before, when the the Israeli Labour Party disassociated itself with the British Labour Party. 
And I, I had, a, I had a, a tweet from an Israeli journalist, I vaguely know, saying, I don't understand Corbyn's response to this. Why isn't, why is he, why isn't he at least saying, I regret that this has happened? They're saying, well, he doesn't regret that this has happened, <laughs> uh, is the basic answer. Yeah, yeah. Because he does have... He, he, so he, he doesn't want to give signals. He doesn't want to give signals to bit, the bits of his base that may be anti-Semitic, that he is not on side with them. Yet he also wishes to dissociate himself from them. It's the Lance Armstrong defence, which is my cheating isn't as bad because everyone's cheating, right? That's what we're talking about. Isn't it inherently political, though, for both sides to politicise it? I felt like this after Grenfell. I think that having been someone who's always been left-leaning, I always sort of assumed that the left would not politicise stuff like this as much, you know. Uh, But then after Grenfell happened... You know, Jeremy Corbyn was quick to come out against Theresa May, even though the Labour Party were responsible for cuts to emergency services, uh, as well as the Conservative Party. So, of course, they're going to politicise it because it's inherently political. And politicising is part of normalising, because once it becomes a political row, I think a lot of people turn off. I know mm-hmm. I do. Once it's the part of that traditional uh, Mate, you ding, sh- you ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm saying it's too easy to switch off when it's just Labour attacks Tory, Tory attacks Labour, and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll go to sleep. But there, is a, but there are things that just sort of make you stand back, jaw open. And one of those for me in the last week was the week before all the Windrush stuff, where you had some comments by the Housing Minister Dominic Raab. Dominic Raab gave an interview to a newspaper, which, in which he said that uh, if you looked, he'd, that he got new research showing that Uh, If you looked at migration, the scale of migration was pushing up house prices Mm -hmm. and that actually, you know, when drawing up a new system for migration post-Brexit, we should we we should get the people who are looking into how to do that to take that into account. And I was very struck by that. And and I was very struck by the fact it didn't start a debate in Tory circles because it seemed to me like an incredibly potentially inflammatory claim. What was he doing? He was going, look. Those people over there, they're coming in and they're pushing up your house prices. You can't afford your house because of those people over there. Mm -hmm. Now, just a bit of me wondered um, which exact Polish people were coming along with deposits of 60, 70, 80,000 pounds and uh, pushing everyone else out of the housing market in London or or elsewhere. And I think actually when we managed to get the evidence behind the claim, it suggested that uh, migration perhaps only accounted for a relatively small proportion of the house price change over the last 20 years. But that kind of charge... I think divides communities in a way two years after an incredibly community dividing referendum that did prey a hell of a lot on race and migration is very dangerous to do. And the fact that people can't see that within parties and that kind of discussion is normalised, I think, is a mark of where we are today. It was also it struck me how it seemed a bit sort of Tory playbook 2012 you know the, the mm-hmm. comment it, it seemed a bit out of sorts those comments from Dominic Barr. also several people pointed out that if there's any impact on housing from migrants because they're the ones who mostly build the new houses <laughs> rather than uh, snap them up listen we, we need to move on because we've got a lot to uh, pack in later we'll be talking about the royals but now let's talk about leadership and this is Sam Coates now for some fake news What I'm about to tell you has already been denied by the individual's aides. There is no concrete evidence for what I'm about to say at all. And anyway, there isn't a vacancy. Nevertheless, I am going to make the following accusation, just because I'm that kind of guy. I think Michael Gove is having impure thoughts about the Tory leadership. Right, so Sam, first of all, we should clarify what impure thoughts you're referring to. <laughs> I think that 
somewhere in the dark recesses of uh, Michael Gove's mind, he is asking himself the question whether or not there might not be an occasion for him to have a shot at the leadership. And actually, if you spend time loitering around Westminster as you and I do, there are other people in Westminster who have those thoughts now, which they perhaps wouldn't have done a year ago and definitely not two years ago when he... (laughs) <laughs> launched his spectacular short-lived leadership bid in 2016. <laughs> Look, I think this is one of the reasons I wanted to do this and do it in the way that I can because everybody denies this suggestion to Kingdom Come. One of the reasons I want to do it is because I seem to spend so much time talking to MPs and journalists and aides and uh, commentators about what is Michael Gove up to and what do we think uh, is the hidden series of dots behind the various actions that he does. And this is a conversation that seems to me to be happening almost entirely in private. So let's just Let's just push it onto the public stage. And it might be something, it might not be something at the end of the day, but it's worth just doing. There are a few things worth saying about uh, Michael Gove. One is that he is regarded by Downing Street and by many Tory MPs as pretty much the most successful cabinet minister out there. He has seized the agenda on the debate around greenery and plastics and all that kind of thing uh, to propel, to give... I mean, he's, he's not just given himself a sense of mission, he's given the government a bit of a, uh, a sense of mission. I am getting weary of the press releases about plastic bags, but at least it gives uh, Theresa May something to, uh, and her government something to talk about. The second thing to say about Michael Gove, within Tory circles, and I, represent, I, and I do realise that Tory circles are not representative of British society, but within Tory circles, Michael Gove remains incredibly popular. He is somebody who can satisfy those on the left of the Conservative Party, like Nicky Moore, who can satisfy many of the Brexiteers on the right, like uh, Dominic Rubb, and even sometimes Jacob Rees-Mogg, depending on what day of the week he gets up. And he can bring <laughs> together a large swathe of the Tories, both because he is a weird combination of Brexiteer, but also economically more on the left, but also because he has that thing that is too lacking at the top of modern politics, which is a pulse uh, and an agile mind. And without wishing to shame most members of the cabinet, I wish they would look in the mirror a little bit more in the morning. And I think that that sets him aside. There are some other vigorous and entertaining and uh, agile and uh, uh, impressive figures around the top table. But he is somebody who is been around, who carries some weight, has a group of supporters. And I just wonder, particularly if the Tory leadership comes up sooner rather than later and for definitional purposes sooner means 2019 and maybe early 2020 rather than towards the back end of this parliament then I wonder whether he will go for it I think that team Boris are looking at Michael's activities and wondering the same thing now there is a great big problem Michael Gove is not popular people have done focus groups say that (laughs) Michael Gove is remembered for one thing and that is stabbing Boris Johnson in the front and then the back and then the side in the summer of 2016 he wasn't particularly popular as an education secretary it was a brilliant moment though it it was and some people even gave facial expressions which showed (laughs) just how extraordinary it was I forgot about that if you don't know what that is when when Boris Johnson when Boris Johnson when Boris Johnson pulled out of the uh, toy leadership um, Norman Smith and BBC was broadcasting live on the BBC News Channel outside the room where it was happening and as the doors swung open and journalists emerged uh, Sam appeared live on TV and pulled the face which spoke spoke for, spoke for, spoke the, spoke the, nation. for the nation yeah. I think it's fair to say um, Tiff are you caught up in Gove mania are you persuaded oh. by his war on cotton buds <laughs> no I, I met him very briefly I did Peston with him and he was incredibly nice to me but I was like of course he's going to be that's his way like I was looking around to go what's have you thrown something on my back is there a knife sticking out of it as you say I think you couldn't pick three more just 
awful people <laughs> for it to be between. You so know, like who, between who Rees Mogg, Boris Johnson, oh, okay. and Michael Gove. Like they're like kind of. I thought you meant Jeremy Corbyn, Vince Cable, and Theresa May. But but yeah, I I don't. I've I kind of didn't agree with with Gove on. School goals and just backing up what you said he's incredibly unpopular i don't think that moment with boris played out well last year um and it kind of looks now given that some people might argue that boris hasn't had a spectacular time at the foreign office maybe gove could say well he did the nation a favor that he stopped he, he didn't think boris was up to the job and arguably boris <laughs> has done nothing since to I uh, felt like they were sort of stepping. I felt like they were stepping back. I felt like it was such a mess. Like no one really wanted to take on sort of Brexit. It's like that thing of like when um, when you can buy is it West Pier in Brighton for a pound? You have to spend <laughs> millions on it. And I felt like the leadership, like yeah. you know, contest was a bit like that. It was like the men have made a mess, and they turned around to a woman and went, "You clear it up now." This is, uh, you know. So I feel like it was a poison chalice for Theresa in the first place. A little bit. It was going to be difficult, but um, I feel like Gove is like Peter Pettigrew in a uh, Harry Potter. The one who was the turncoat, who became a sort of rat, was was he siding with the Dark Lord, or was he with you know was he with the good good guys? And I always feel like that. You never really know where you are with Gove and whether you can trust him. That is actually the conversation going on in Tory circles. Mm. A lot of Brexiteers wonder, can we trust him? A lot of people who used to work with him around education, can we trust him? Is he the guy that we really believe in? He obviously wants to be. Prime Minister, because he's a sort of politician who isn't dead, and and that's that's, <laughs> that's what, they, what they do. That's what they, that's what they do. I mean, one interesting one interesting thing about Gove at the moment is that he doesn't talk about Brexit anymore. It's ages since I heard him talk about Brexit. It's almost like he wants people to forget which side of that debate he was on. But the other thing, all his all his plastic stuff, all his environment stuff, is pretty well. I mean, yes, it's his job, but the way in which he's pursuing it, he basically is the only bit of Theresa May's cabinet who is still speaking to that kind of. Cameron demographic, that kind of sort of vote blue, go go green type of thing. You know, yeah, and and there is there is this 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 demographic out there of 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 basically sort of you know young centrist professionals who really do care about stuff like plastic, and he's he's the only person who seems to be triangulating that kind of group. And when you when you bundle together the various Gove issues, you know, you 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 put together you put together that and you bundle it together with. an understanding of schools, even if it is in a way that many people don't necessarily like. And you look, he's he does have a kind of a worldview that looks towards that bit of the potentially Tory vote that the Tories don't get. Remember who elects party leaders? It's the party memberships. And I think more than at any point in my life, the Labour Party membership and the Tory Party membership do not reflect perhaps society as mm-hmm. a whole. And, and I'm going to put on my tin hat as I say this, perhaps Jeremy Corbyn was voted in by the Labour membership, uh, the original Labour membership, as a bit of a palliative. I think that Michael Gove would be a bit of a palliative to the Tory membership, not necessarily the most publicly electable, generally electable (laughs) uh, choice that they could have gone for, but something that makes most wings of the party feel happy about themselves. And the question is whether or not that would 
put the party on a limit the party's appeal at the next general election or not? Well, I mean, the the the, the Corbyn comparison. I mean, you can compare anyone with 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 Corbyn when you. It's a bit like sort of Goodwin's Law, but I shouldn't say that. But you know, I mean? <laughs> you know where I'm going. Um, but uh, but um, you Back know, to the edits, when, when you're going to the, you know, the extreme form or something. But the thing about Gove is, of course, there are many people who are just sort of stricken with disbelief at the idea that the Tories might wish to be led by Gove. But they're the people who wouldn't vote Tory anyway. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't really matter what somebody who's never voted Tory and is never going to vote Tory thinks about Michael Gove, because they're not going to vote Tory. I'm, and I, I have been struck on the plastic thing, speaking to non-political people in the in the real world, who I, I remember speaking to a couple of uh, women in the early 20s, on the la- one of the days when they launched something on plastic, so it was plastic mm. bags or microbeads or something. And they said to me, uh, I'm, I'm left-wing, obviously, as if that was obvious, <laughs> uh, but I really love this plastic stuff. And if it is giving them a way in to voters that they wouldn't normally yeah. reach. And it is amazing how he's managed to turn DEFRA into an interesting department, <laughs> which used to be a sort of graveyard for people on the way out. Or Don't you, you, know, re- don't you remember the Liz Truss years? Well, cheese, well, of obviously. Course not. <laughs> well, that is a disgrace. But, but with, with animals as well. You know, I mean, like there's that oft-repeated thing about, about just how much damage the... The fact that the, Tory, the last Tory manifesto didn't mention an ivory ban, how much damage that did them on social media. Um, animal, animal sentience. I mean, it yeah. ended up actually being an argument about uh, semantics and what was and wasn't in. Yeah. But in terms of the row, he'd, he, but Gove is gripped by the power of that to mobilise both yeah. for and against. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that um, uh, pans out. And it's interesting to see quite how many denials um, we managed to generate, Sam, over the next, <laughs> over the next uh, couple of days. The relevant um, people have my number. The, and they do listen, because various <laughs> people in government keep telling me off for things that we discuss. <laughs> uh, in a sec, we will discuss uh, the Royals, uh, but we'll be back after this short break. 
uh, every half an hour or so. For every centimetre dilated, one of the Queen's swans was fired into space. Um, <laughs> crowning was followed by actual crowning. Eventually, Kate gave birth to five miles of bunting due to fevered jingoistic expectation outside the hospital. And then the placenta is thrown into a ring. Burley and Witch will fight to the death. That's pretty much how it goes. For that's, a how it, that's how it all passed. While Kay, Kay Burley stands outside. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you. Because I think, on the one hand, I, I take your point that there's a, it's a lot of. There is an awful lot of coverage. Do you think that people are just relieved that there is something other than Brexit and sort of global conflict and misery and, you know. People having babies, that's just nice. It doesn't really affect anyone. I mean, it's another mouth to feed, but I assume <laughs> that they'll be able to cope. Yeah, well, another mouth that we're paying for. No, uh, I, it's interesting when you go abroad, people are so fascinated and obsessed by the royals. I was in uh, LA at the beginning of, of the year and girls in their 20s particularly, because they see Meghan Markle, they're like, oh my God, are you excited about the royal wedding? And I'm like, no one in the UK cares as much as you. <laughs> But they think she's uh, living the dream, to use their words, you know. I think it's some kind of fever cheese dream. But they see her going from, like, game show hostess to actual princess. Whereas I see her going from quite successful actress to public servant with racist in-laws. Just a difference <laughs> of opinion. Um, but, but also, yeah. if you compare heads of state and their families, we've got a better deal at the moment than perhaps the well, Americans have. Well, we have to. We've got them forever. Yeah, yeah, where, yeah. we have them forever, whether we want it or don't want it. And I think it's interesting because obviously the, the younger generations of royals are much uh, 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 viewed much, you know, better, I think, in public opinion. And when I do material in comedy clubs about the royals, sometimes people get very uptight. And of all the stuff I talk about, I've talked about gun control. Is this control. the Royal Variety? <laughs> the Royal Variety, yeah, yeah. The Queen wasn't mad about my jokes. It's interesting, people get very defensive and I do think I, I would just think about how much money is going to go on security for the royal wedding and you know people would argue I suppose that they bring in money in terms of tourism and everything else but it just it seems like we're reaching sort of peak royal and I, I always kind of feel what's the agenda when we see more and more you know we're, we're going to celebrate this we're going to celebrate the royals and it's a baby and it's a wedding and it's another birthday and ah, they're here and everything's going to be alright and this keep calm and carry on and meanwhile you know like it, feel, it feels so wrong to see that much money spent on that when there are the poverty you know in the UK at the moment the amount of people using food banks it does feel and I know it's a bit of whataboutery I'm doing with this. I'm aware that that's, that's the case. Right. That's what but... this podcast for. <laughs> you know. So, there, was a, there was a, from a sort of journalist perspective, yesterday morning, so we're recording on Tuesday, Monday morning when we heard that Kate had gone into Labour, there was a sort of breath of relief amongst political journalists. Put away your customs union explainers <laughs> for at least a day. Somebody tweeted, I can't remember. I who. think so. It, it, at least um, there was some respite. From and actually, if you look look at, look at the papers today, lots of them, not all of them, but lots of them, full of coverage, which is a welcome relief from the rest of the news. Yes, I don't give too much of a monkey's about what happens in the royal family, but I absolutely adore the media and journalism, if you can call it that, that goes on around everything to do <laughs> yeah. with moments like this. So let's start. Let's start with the good. I am in complete awe 
of Kay Burley. I mean, the fact <laughs> that she landed from her holiday at 9am and bang was on there. And she did not know whether she was going to be talking for three hours or three days or maybe a week. I mean, who knows? And um, I was almost disappointed that we didn't get to see day two, hour seven. Uh, <laughs> because the ability of that person to carry in a way that none of the people on the boring political side could ever do. But then you wonder what on earth is the relationship like between Nicholas Witchell and the senior members of the royal family. That is just totally fascinating as far as I'm concerned. Then you've got all this stuff that basically I think there's a load of really fun and entertaining politics in the royal family that basically royal correspondents don't ever really write about. So there's loads of stuff that they don't say. And then you've got the battle of which commentators are going to be the ones on telly and which ones aren't. The sharp elbows between, and I'm not going to name people who work in newspapers who sometimes go on telly, but I think it's, <laughs> a, complete, it's a complete rat race and I love it. So give me that soap opera any day of the week. What the royals are actually doing, who cares? But what that Brat Pack want, I, lo- I, c- I can't get enough of it. But that's that's it. That's what's go- that's the whole point. That's what the royals are and what they're for. I, I, when just after uh, Wills and Kate got married, I had a bet with with Phil Collins, our colleague, um, that we would get to the end of the year without there being nine days in a row when she wasn't on the front page of at least two newspapers. And I failed actually. It was only it was only a couple of months that that lasted for. But the, the like, if you get kind of big picture about this, the story of the royals over the last. 50 years is fascinating and the reason why it's fascinating is because they've gone from being actually quite an important piece of our constitution and system which was absurd to just not really having any function at all just just sort of being there there's this thing that we vaguely feel protective of they're pop stars who don't sing you know they're they're, they're like they're like pets um and, um and that's fine that's 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 what they're for they, they exist to sit there so we can talk about them and that's it that's all it is on, on the subject of uh, pop stars who do sing, we should probably just uh, briefly touch on the extraordinary 92nd birthday concert uh, in the Royal <laughs> Albert Hall on Saturday night where the Queen had to sit through uh, Shaggy and Sting, which is the weirdest, sort of most <laughs> awkward combination since uh, Clegg and Cameron did the thing in the Rose Garden uh, when they first formed the coalition. And then Ed Balls on the ukulele oh. singing um, When I'm Cleaning Windows with Harry Hill and Frank Skinner. So, when, when you just said 90 second concert, I thought, I'm sure it lasted longer than that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> It certainly felt like it. That's about how much I managed. Yeah. Look, what I really wanted from the coverage was a webcam on just her all the way through. <laughs> Because every every time they cut to her, she was looking on at the her queen. Program. We're talking about on, on the queen. Not on Kate. She's in labour. No, that's a Channel Four. That's a Channel Four father or documentary. No, but, uh, every that's a Channel Five. Like, <laughs> you're, you're I, wanted, I wanted the I wanted the fat box with the number of the times the queen smiled. I wanted the number of times she looked down at her program in utter boredom at these ridiculous characters that were there to theoretically entertain her. I wanted the number of knowing glances that she had with Prince Charles and Prince William, who were also in the box with her. I mean, I just wanted to watch her. I couldn't give two monkeys about what was going on on the stage i find i find her and her way of absorbing what's going on around absolutely fascinating and uh, yeah no we wanted a little box with her in the corner as i said that's what monarchy is you're a monarchist that's what they're for they're for looking at and being mean to and sometimes being nice about and just doing whatever the hell you want because they're never going anywhere the, the, the reason that I'm probably more minded to say let's not get rid of them at the moment is because if we got rid of them we'd probably have some kind of presidential replacement and that would mean more elections yeah, the f- and the one thing I'm not sure that my <laughs> domestic life that my mental state or the country could cope with is the idea of more elections or votes of any kind at all 
anytime soon. You've gone full Brenda from Bristol when Brenda. they called the snap oh, election. Oh no, not another one. What is she doing? <laughs> yeah. And I'm from the West Coast, so I'm allowed to do that. So that's definitely that's definitely not racist. I, I have a theory about the Queen. Do you want to hear it? Go on. That she has mugs uh, with pictures of normal people on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll have to leave it there on that uh, silly note. Don't forget, you can send us your questions about what it's like working in Downing Street to Redbox at the Times. Dot We'll try and answer those next week. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on your Android device, and do uh, leave a review. Tell us what you think, Carl's A we'd like to know and B it helps us on the iTunes charts particularly when even Nick Clegg's got a podcast we need all the help we can get but for now for my guests Sam Coates Hugo Rifkin Tiff Stevenson and me Matt Jolly it's goodbye Thank you for downloading to discover more head to thetimes.co.uk This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.